This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome to The DST, the official DST podcast, hosted by Matthew Redmond. And Izzy Flower. Wow, that was cringy as f***. This week's episode is sponsored by Rocket Theatre Company, because we do exist. This week is our DDF special. We're talking to people from Scratch Night, people from General Programme, and generally giving you all of that sweet, sweet gossip information on the shows that you will definitely be seeing. There will be no gossip on this show. Even though it's called the DST and it's yeah. gossip it. <laughs> this week in uh, DST, we've had the classical showcase. Izzy, could you please tell us how that went? Well, it was really fun. There was a, It was in the Burley Room. It was just a lot of very good actors performing very good monologues. She and... was one of the very good actors. No, I wasn't. Uh, and just, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was. It's really nice to have something that's not necessarily a play where you can also stretch your acting muscles. And later on this week, we have a couple of non-show things and also the scratch night. Try and be pauses. So as you all know, next week is the start of Durham Drama Festival. We're going for over 40 years with a focus on new writing, acting. We've got some great venues, so we're in the assembly rooms and are we Mark Hillary? Yeah, assembly rooms, Mark Hillary, Art Centre and Kevin Hall. And it's going to be a really fab mixture of original works. We have the scratch night and launch party tomorrow night. And also there's going to be a series of workshops which we'll be posting about in the near future. And in order to promote the show, we have decided to interview the various writers involved in both the general programme and the scratch yeah, night. It's really helpful actually because we were like, what should we do for our first ever episode of the DST? And then just DDF presented itself. Well, we were totally planning on doing it for DDF and tried to look for the last minute. No, Matthew, no. So we've managed to speak to a fat portion of the DDF writers. A good majority. (laughs) (laughs) Or essentially the ones that applied to us. And they have been sharing their thoughts on the plays they've written and what the process of DDF has been, what they're planning to do with them and what they're planning to do after. So let's hear from them. Matt, take it away. Okay, uh, we have been locked out of the Purple Radio studio, uh, but we are outside in the DSU having some fun times with Larry Mathias. Hi. Well, I don't know what I meant to say. <laughs> yeah, we just, we just, we, we, we just, we'll just record it. It'll be fine. Okay. Uh, so Larry is the writer of Fishbowl, uh, another DDF show. Uh, it's been two years since Ailey saw her older sister Fiona. Now Ailey's all grown up and getting on with her life, or trying to. But Fiona's back, boyfriend in tow, and Ailey has a lot of explaining to do about what she's been up to in her absence. It's a very, it's a very exciting synopsis. Um, so, basic question that we're, we're just asking everyone, what was your inspiration for writing this play? Um, so I've actually been trying to write this play for quite a while. Um, I've been trying to write it for like two years, but I keep kind of losing track of it. Um, I just really like the idea of Ailey as a character. Um, you know, there's thing about the idea of somebody who like doesn't want to do anything and doesn't want to get on with their lives and then just like doesn't. Because I feel like all of us kind of sometimes feel like you don't want to do anything and you just want to stay in bed, but we don't. So I wanted to look at what it would be like if, if we did and what that would feel like. Okay, that's really interesting. So you'd say like, I, I want to ask like, what's the dynamic? Obviously, you've got these two sisters. Like, what's what's their dynamic? What's their what's the relationship like? Is it regular familial stuff, or is it a bit more strained? 
I'm very, very strained, I would say. Um, they haven't seen each other in two years, because uh, mainly because Fiona doesn't want to see her. So it's, it's a very strange reunion, definitely. There's a lot of issues that are unresolved that um, get resolved to an extent um, throughout the play, but of course no, never fully resolved. How do you feel like the process, the DDF process, has been so far? I'm enjoying it so far. Um, I'm enjoying the rehearsals. I think we've got a really good cast and everyone's quite on the ball with it, um, even when I'm changing lines and changing the script and everything. Like, people are really receptive, which is nice. What would you, what would you say is like your favourite, would you like to describe your favourite section slash scene of the play? Um, I think I have oh, two. Okay. So my favourite like section of the play is when Ailey and Fiona finally kind of have this confrontation that it's been building up to. Um, it's, it's kind of nice because you're kind of waiting for it as the play goes on. You're like, oh, what's happened? Like, why did she leave? Why is it so stressful that she's come back? Um, so that's quite nice to see and kind of get some clarity about that. But then I would say if I had to have a favourite character, it would definitely be Andrew as a character because I think he's just kind of just a horrible person. He's, he's the boyfriend, right? He's the boyfriend. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> but it's he, in like a nice, like a smarmy, like charming way, which I think is quite nice to watch. We all know them, don't we? We all do, <laughs> yes. Especially Durham. He's every Durham boy. How much of the show would you say is autobiographical? Would you say like part, as, lots of aspects taken from your life or if it's entirely like a cre new creation? things where you don't really realize what you're writing about until you've written it and then you look back at it and you're like oh like there was this anecdote that my English teacher told me like ages ago that said that sometimes writing is like packing a suitcase to go to the airport and then they open up your suitcase and they're like oh do you know you've got like a loaded gun in here and then you say like oh I don't remember putting that there but now you've shown it to me I see that it's there if that makes sense. No, that, Like, you don't that, really notice yeah. that you're putting stuff in until afterwards, and but, then you're reading it, and you're like, oh, maybe. But it, but it is, like, stuff from your life that you just sort of... Um, yeah. A little bit, a little. I would say. Not all of it, definitely. No, oh, yeah, for sure. Well, this is the thing. Sometimes these things don't, like, always translate completely literally. But yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and then, what is your main reason for setting it in Scotland? Um, because I'm Scottish. Really? I hadn't noticed. I uh, dislike the fact that I always have to do accents. <laughs> so I was like, well, I'll make them do my accent. And I, I almost regretted it. I was almost like, forget it, but. How, how are the accents so far? They started Irish, now they're Scottish. <laughs> do you have any closing remarks before I, I get you to do a little, little challenge? What's the challenge? Get, look, get ready for the challenge. You can't uh, say that. and expect me not to be thinking about okay, the challenge. Okay, let's, let's do the challenge first. I want you to essentially pitch your play in 30 seconds. Ah! Uh, okay, uh, ready? Three, two, one, go. So Fishbowl is a play, I would say, largely about forgiveness and self-forgiveness, which I think is a very interesting theme to explore because I'm kind of trying to look at... Um, these ideas of like self, of like kind of emotional paralysis and how you can live your life if you're still kind of trying to look back at the past and trying to work out how to like forgive yourself and other people for what's happened to you. Um, uh, and oh, that that's time. Oh, I thought I had more time, but then I also didn't. I didn't know if I should start saying the next thing because I didn't know how much time I had to say it. Thank you so much for coming here. I'm so sorry Thank that we got knocked out. Thank you for having me on this sofa.
Okay, we are here with Ryan King, writer of Green Alert. Uh, an environmentalist satire, when a group of eco-terrorists threaten to nuke the planet if sea levels don't stop rising, the president and his team meet up in the White House Situation Room to coordinate a response. So, hello, Ryan. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, like, we're, we're, we're sitting on a couch right now, like, just sort of, like, at the top of the DSU where it's a little bit quieter, and uh, it's very intimate. It is, yes. Like, I just gave a quick look at us. He's a bit confused. But, uh, yeah, well, he's, he's just going to have to deal with it. Um, okay, so, very basic question to asking everyone. Uh, what was your inspiration for writing this play? So, originally, I wanted... To, I'd just finished... Watch, I'd, no, it's close to finishing watching the US office. And then there was a school shooting. Not okay, in, not over. In, <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I don't remember that in the office. But. Not, in, not in the US office, but... In in life, and I was then there was there was this fairly, I can't remember which one it was, but there was the fairly standard sort of relative of the victim, um, you know, speaking passionately about gun control. And I was thinking, we see this so often. How can you really get this message through to people? And I was thinking, what if in the final episode of the U.S. Office there was a shooting and they were all killed? And it's not like comparable to like losing a child or whatever. But it is somewhat comparable to losing a friend. Like, imagine you've been watching this show for like nine years, and then all of a sudden, that happens, no resolution. I think that'd be a really powerful message in favor of gun control. It's very soprano. Soprano just stops abruptly, yes. Yeah. Um, so I thought, right, let's just apply that logic to a, a sitcom I was working on. Except um, that was, that's in Britain. So obviously that wasn't going to work. So I thought, okay, what else is there? Okay, how about war? How about just anti-war instead of anti-gun? It's like, well, it's still Britain. So nuclear war? Mm, yeah. And then I was like, okay, let's just do a parody of Dr. Strangelove. Because the full title is Green Alert or How I Learned to Face My Fears and Stop Delaying the Inevitable. I did notice that, and I'm a big fan of the Dr. Strangelove uh, or How I Learned How to... How was it? To Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb? Yes, that's yes. the uh, Dr. Strangelove one. That's good times. So from there... I thought, okay, well, I don't just want to rip it off. I've got to change it slightly. I was like, okay, what is the modern version of uh, the Cold War threat back in the Cold War? And the biggest threat at the moment, well, except more now it might be coronavirus. Oh, yeah. But the biggest threat at the time was uh, the environmental catastrophe. Indeed. And then it's just I'm mashing the two together. Okay. So that, and, and that gave birth to this. And play. that gave birth to this. So the themes are obviously talking about climate change and uh, like ecological disasters, but it is a comedy, it's a parody. It's a co- yes. And it's, I believe it's set in America, it's got the president. It's set in America, yeah. it's so, all in one room. So I like, from what I've seen of the play, just in like the excerpts that you released and stuff, it seems quite, the characters seem quite farcical. Is that yeah. fair to say? Like That's fair to say, I think. They're, they're, they're all like quite. Uh, over the top and yeah, like they're caricatures mm. to a certain extent. Yeah. Do you th- and, and is this is this about getting the message across or is this about comedy? It's about comedy because you don't really need to get the message across because everybody already knows the message. Yeah, exactly. So I decided the president is very much listening to other people, and then we've got a couple of people on the left wing on one side mm-hmm. and a couple of people on the right wing on the other side. And, so it sort and, of makes yeah. fun of both of them too. Both of them are quite like equally ridiculous. Yes. Okay. Um, so, and you are you wrote this, but you're not directing it. I'm co-directing. You're it. co-directing it. Yeah. Sorry. But you really, wrote this, but you're co-directing but yeah. it. <laughs> I, I am, but Owen Kennedy is picking up a lot of the slack because okay. I this is my first ever DST 
project ever. Indeed. Did you originally write it as a film or? Yes. Okay. Originally it was a film. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was talking to Mezeb Chowdhury. Sorry. Right? Yep. Oh, no, never mind. It's fine. I was talking to Mezeb and I was saying, right, I want to work on this thing, but I've got to finish writing this film first. And he says, you're only in Durham for a limited time. Any projects you want to work on should probably be ones you can actually achieve while in Durham. Uh, well, that's what I want to ask. What, what would you say is has your like transition from DSF and, and filmmaking to DST and, and more theatre stuff? Well, definitely the the acting is a lot less subtle. Um, there, there was some, especially like in auditions, I was saying that was really good. Like, no, the energy's low, and they'd be like, that was ridiculously high energy. You know, it was like that's what we want. Yeah. But definitely, when there's you know, you've got to be acting to the person in the back of the room. The energy is right. I mean, you got you got to project it really. Yeah, Whereas yeah. when you got a camera right in front of you, you don't have to do that. Yeah. So, but do you prefer it, or is that is that fair to say? Or um, I th- I think I prefer film because I, I think you, you got to keep it once it's done. Mm. And this is, but this is very I'm very happy with the way it's going. Okay. Especially when it's watching the cast bring it to live in auditions. You, you you like the cast? You think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The they bring it forward. Uh, I have to issue you a challenge. Oh no. Yes. You are going to be completely unprepared for this. Uh, okay. <laughs> I want you to pitch me your play in 30 seconds. In 30 seconds. And three, two, one, go. Green or How I Learned to Face My Fears and Stop Delaying the Inevitable is a very timely story. Um, it, it deals with uh, some of the, the, big, the big politics happening at the moment. It's funny, it's wordy. A lot of quotable lines in there. There's a lot of uh, it's a bit of fun. Um, there's it, yep. It contains videos, which which most plays don't. It should, yeah, come see it. And that's all we have time for. <laughs> I, I mean, I love how you, ha- you 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 couldn't figure out stuff to say, but you said the full title of the play. Oh yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, that's all we have time for, I believe. Uh, the, thank you very much. But yeah, no, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Like, it's, it's absolutely great to have you here promote, promoting all the wonderful stuff, and I hope to see your works in the future. Here we are with Elliot Ancoda, the writer of Tourists. Uh, Dee lives in a tent. It's winter, and a young volunteer is standing in his home. She says that she wants to help. Dee thinks it isn't so simple. Meanwhile, in a tiny office, two aid workers hatch a plot. The time for action is now, but is it worth risking everything for? People are shifting, plans are being made. You can feel it in the air. Did you write that synopsis about five months ago and didn't expect it to be plastered absolutely everywhere? Yeah, yeah. it's funny how that happens actually, yeah. No, 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 it was a kind of, uh, yeah, like a five minute sell your, sell your play. And, uh, yeah, and that's what we came up with. You'll be doing a little bit of that later. Um, so what was the inspiration for you writing this play? Um, it all came from um, a trip that I took uh, last summer um, to Lebanon and uh, with my friend Toby and uh, it just it, it sort of began as a sort of collection of stories um, that either stuff that we saw or things that we heard when we were out there um, and it was just, we we, uh, we had sort of lots of long conversations about it and uh, yeah and then sort of what what started as these these sort of uh, anecdotes kind of wove themselves together into a story so you know I don't have a great imagination so most of it is true <laughs> so it's, it's very like sort of autobiographical uh, yeah or the, uh, yeah I mean none of the characters are me but I mean the the characters uh, you know it's based on people that I was around and um, elements of stuff that I experienced 
Does it sort of change having done one of these experiences yourself, how you sort of write because it didn't come across because I auditioned for it lol it didn't come across as very complimentary to the whole volunteers does you having been on one of these things change your perception when you're writing it well I mean it wasn't I I didn't really want it to be either particularly like uh critical or in support I didn't really want it to fall down on either side all I wanted it to be was a sort of um just a sort of outlook for the kind of questions that we found ourselves um, that, that we were asking each mm -hmm. other sort of uh, during when we were out there um, yeah I think I don't think we, we one thing that I was very worried about the whole time was just sort of being didactic about it and and that's something that was, we've really really tried to avoid um, so yeah I mean it, it sort of poses us I think a number of questions about kind of the right way of doing things. So would you say that the play isn't political in itself, or it is, but it doesn't take a particular stance on it? We really tried to do as possible. So it's technically about refugees, but we never say refugee in the play. Um, it's kind of inspired by Lebanon, but the place in which it takes place is never named. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the sort of refugee um, character doesn't really have an ethnicity and it's played by a, a guy speaking in RP. Um, the idea was that we wanted to focus on the kind of complex friendships and uh, connections that one can make in situations like that without having to make it sort of a refugee play or whatever. Oh, how do you like the cast? Oh, I love him. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's been it's it's great how we managed to sort of wrangle um, so many sort of cool people and a lot of the cast I didn't know before and uh, yeah they've all been wonderful. That and also the prod team. I mean they've all approached this kind of new project with a with a enthusiasm which feels completely unjustified. But it's uh, it's been a wonderful experience and uh, yeah, I, it's always really flattering to have really talented people sort of. Um, digging into uh, this little idea that you had a, a few weeks ago, you know, a few months ago. So, yeah, it's nice. I have to run off to a workshop. You can keep my laptop. <laughs> I will keep and your do laptop. The challenge. Okay, so basically, you have to pitch your play to us. Why it's good. Why people should see it in thirty seconds. In hell. Okay. Can you do that? Um, yeah, you can. Go on. Right. Okay. Right. Three, two, one. Go. Uh, Taurus is an exciting, confusing, and cinematic experience. If, sorry. If you um, uh, yep. There's um, I don't know. It's got. It's exciting. Uh, it asks a lot of questions, and hopefully, uh, yeah. Hopefully, it's going to be a good watch. Just, just come and see it. <laughs> Well, I think that's a sort of in approaching this play because you deal much more with film generally. Did you bring anything specifically from that sort of mindset into how you're like directing this and writing this? Well, I mean, I've, I've actually done much more theatre than film, but um, I've always liked plays which are kind of filmy. Like I've always liked, I've always liked to make plays in a in a quite filmic way. Yeah. You know, um, I, I really like the use of tech, and I really like. Um, pinging the audience between scenes and, and, and really keeping them captivated. I think there's nothing better in a theatre when the lights go down and the music ha music turns up and you feel like something's happening. And I, I really wanted to build a sense of atmosphere in this mm. play. And so it's kind of, have you had quite an integrated sort of approach to tech when directing this? Yeah, that was the plan from the very beginning, really. So we got a, you know, we brought a, a tech director on board at the very beginning of the process. Um, and uh, sort of, uh, we've been meeting 
uh, very, very frequently in order to sort of build a build a technical world at the same time as we build a sort of dramatic one. Um, I do a lot of, I'm doing um, a lot of the sound design myself and Emily Hicks, who's the tech director, is an absolute wizard when it comes to everything else. And so hopefully, I, I think that when tech's good and I play it, it just it's part of the story it's kind mm -hmm. of seamless and that's what we're really going for here and now we're going to talk to Imogen Usherwood about her play Number Theory it's late Evelyn has a maths exam tomorrow and stress doesn't begin to cover it luckily Stella has decided to help just like she always does when life gets a bit too much Number Theory is a two woman show about maths mental health and everything in between did you think when you wrote that summary that everyone would be looking at it and reading it like three or four months later um, absolutely not. Kind of getting into DDF generally has been such like, I didn't ever think it would happen, if that makes sense. Like I just remember writing, I started writing the play in my room in like July and like thinking, oh, DDF would be cool. But then it's something that you kind of never really expect to happen. And kind of when it comes on, it's such an intense process. But like, it's been so amazing to kind of see the way people like talking about it and publicizing it and everything. Nice. So like, what was your, what was your original inspiration behind the play? Um, so I think a lot of it for me, it came from um, the idea of like having a protagonist and an antagonist in plays and literature and so on and thinking about kind of the way that they can interact and obviously the antagonist's aim being to like stop the protagonist getting what they want. And I'd kind of, when I started writing, I was like mental health was playing quite heavily on my mind and... Um, I think I was just thinking a lot about ideas of like anxiety and kind of being on your own. Um, and it's sort of, I kind of stumbled on the idea of like, okay, a two person show where one person has anxiety and the other person is anxiety. And thinking about the way that that dynamic would work and kind of how they would interact with each other and how it's got to be a lot less kind of clear cut than just a protagonist and antagonist and how actually they get on and sometimes they're friends, sometimes they hate each other and the different way that that relationship has to work. Cool. So, I mean, you're an English student, so it might be a bit of a rogue choice to suddenly start talking about maths for an hour. And Matt is really annoyed that he's not conducting this interview because he's a comp sci, and as we all know, the only things comp sci do is maths. But sort of, what was your, what was your like impetus for make it for an English student writing a play all about that joyous thing, mathematics? Um, so I am an English student. I did do maths A level, to be fair. Loser. Um, I know. Uh, what a sad life. But um, yes, yeah, so it was when I started writing it. The first thing that came is I want to write a play about mental health. That was the first thing I thought about. And I started writing and it was just this two-hander, two-person conversation talking about anxiety. And I realized really quickly that mental health and anxiety are such like abstract concepts that it's really hard to talk about them without like having something really solid to fix it to. You can't just go on about it for an hour because it just, there isn't, there's only so much you can kind of say. And so I started thinking about, okay, I actually need to set this play in a context. So I started thinking about like making it about a student because that's something I can obviously relate to. Um, and kind of going from there and I was thinking, okay, what sort of things can kind of inform this conversation? And it kind of came a bit from um, the play Constellations by Nick Payne, mm -hmm. which uses like physics and the multiverse to tell a love story. And I thought, okay, what kind of hasn't been done and like no one seems to have written plays where they use maths to inform things um so i decided that evelyn was going to be a math student and kind of the more and more i thought about that the more it kind of bleeds into the dialogue of talking about mental health so a lot of words like imaginary or complex or relationship that are very valid if you talk about personal feelings and mental health but also are actually mathematical terms um and that kind of thing came up more and more and it actually became really interesting to kind of cover those two at once so also this play has had a quite a long 
germination. So you wrote it, submitted it for a scratch night, got in, you sent it, you've performed a bit of it in London and now it's coming to DDF. So what has it been like working on this play with a similar cast and prod team for such an extensive amount of time? How was that? Because especially because most Durham things were such a quick turnaround and pretty much everyone else in DDF has had such a massive t- quick turnaround in comparison. So what's kind of, how has that process been different for you? Um, it's actually been, it's been like a really rewarding experience, I thought, especially because I was kind of so aware that with DDF, as you say, it is such a quick turnaround time. But um, yeah, it means I started writing this in July and then we did casting for the Maiden Speech Festival, where the Scratch Night was, the Scratch Night was in, I think, October. Then we did it in November and then it kind of went on hold for a bit until DDF. Um, and then, yeah, it's, we've kind of had the last few weeks again to start working on it. I think a lot of people have been saying, oh, it must mean that like everyone knows their lines. It's all really easy. And that's completely not true because I rewrote half the script over Christmas. Um, so they don't know any of the lines. Well, they do now, but they didn't at the time. Um, and so there's been that. But what it has meant is almost like we've had like a long workshop process mm. for it, I suppose, because when we took an extract of it to London, it was only 15 minutes worth. It wasn't a lot, but it meant that we kind of we all had a lot of time to like think about the characters and the relationship and I actually kind of got to see my two characters interacting and that was something that you can't kind of create in your head and actually seeing two people kind of putting their time into creating it did make a difference and I think it has just given us a lot more time mm-hmm. to like let the play kind of germinate and develop. So like within the context of DDF as a whole what are your sort of plans um, in terms of tech and staging so how do you take that from like a scratch night thing where you have two chairs maximum how are you transplanting that into the AR when it's got so much to play with yeah so at the scratch night we literally had as you say like two chairs it was kind of nothing um so we've still gone for something quite minimal because what I always had in my head when I wrote it I had a set in my mind from the very beginning and we've pretty much created that um it's one continuous scene so there's no set changes which is quite nice um and there's no blackouts until the end Mm -hmm. um but it's literally set in a student bedroom so we have a bed and a desk and a whiteboard and that is it so what have you what have you enjoyed about the whole process of DDF and what would you like to get from the experience and is there anywhere you'd like to take this play afterwards back to London to the Isle of Man for instance sort of what what are your what are your thoughts and plans and what have you got from this experience um, so this has been the best experience because if I'd like, ever known when I was at school, when I started at Durham, that I'd get to write a play and then have it performed with actual people in an actual theatre, that's insane. I never ever thought that would happen. Um, so it's been an absolute kind of pleasure to work on that and have, especially just having the time to work on something that I've put so much time into and have a cast and crew who are also so invested in it and really care about it as well has been so nice. Um, in terms of the future, I don't really know. I'm just, I think we're just going to have to kind of see where we go with it. Um, I'd like it not to be the end of Stella and Evelyn because I'm quite fond of them. Um, but I guess we're going to have to see. But for now, I'm just very excited to be doing this, I suppose. And finally, I would like you to summarise your play and why people should see it in 30 seconds. Okay. So three two, one, go. So Number Theory is a two-woman play about maths, mental health, anxiety, and everything in between. I think people should come and see it because I think it's something that hopefully everybody's going to find relatable in some way or another, whether it's about relationships, academic pressure, medical diagnoses, kind of any of the above. I think everybody will kind of find something for them that they can relate to in it. And hopefully also it's an enjoyable show and an example of like female-led theatre. Dreamy. Thank you, Imogen. And now we're going to be interviewing Charles Edward Pipe, otherwise known as Pipey, otherwise known as Charlie, the writer of The Landlord's Arms. 
This play is a goofy comedy about idiotic gangsters muddling their way through the 60s criminal underworld. So, what was your inspiration for writing the play to start with? Um, so, it's sort of like a homage to lots of the classic British comedies that I like. Lots of like Monty Python influences, The Two Ronnies, Faulty Towers, all of that good stuff. Um, and I wanted to write something sort of nice, nice and pure and fun and funny. So I did. Yeah. Cool. So how's kind of the process of all the... How has it been directing it, having written it, and all that kind of jazz? Oh, it's been great, yeah. I've got a cast of eight people, and they're all super, super talented. Um, and the first thing I wanted to do was just try and make sure that they all, like, gelled with each other and had a good chemistry and a good rapport with each other. Um, so the first rehearsals were very, very relaxed. I was just letting them kind of joke around, have a lot of fun. And... That, that kind of energy has persisted through the rest of the rehearsals, so the, the cast are like happy to joke around and try things out and experiment, and that means that they're coming up with lots of jokes and lots of ideas that one writer by himself may not be able to think of. Um, so it's very much a sort of ensemble piece um, with the actors putting as much in as I did as a writer. Nice. So this started out last year as a scratch night piece. What's sort of been the process of taking it from what was about five minutes of strong sketch comedy stuff almost into a full length DDF play? Um, well, when I the, the first draft was sort of basically a series of sketches um, and a couple of them are pretty much exactly the same as the first scene, but in different locations um, with slightly different characters. But, you know, it's, it's a similar kind of style and feeling. Um, and then I sort of effectively filled in the gaps, found all the, all the jokes that I liked and thought worked, and then I sort of built the story around that. Um, yeah. Originally, the, the first draft was a lot darker. Um, it was going to end with a big, big tragic death of one of the characters. Oof. Oof, exactly. But um, I decided to keep it light and fun, um, so I got rid of that. So what are your kinds of ideas for set and tech and that kind of jazz? Because you're in the A, are you in the AR? Mm -hmm. So that's, there's a lot of stuff you can play for with that. So what are your kind of plans and ideas? Um, because I'm very lazy, um, <laughs> everything is as minimal as possible in terms of set and tech. I have one table and three chairs. Wow. Um, and they come on and off at times, um, and the tech consists of the lights coming up and going down at various points, and for the longer scene transitions, there's going to be a bit of music playing to keep that energy going. Um, but have, you, have you decided to use any kind of physical theatre to represent anything? Or? Um, there is one scene uh, that stands out. It's... It's a scene where three of the characters go to row a boat on a lake. Um, and in that scene, I have all the other actors, so five other actors coming on stage and acting out the lake with their bodies. Um, and they sort of become the waves and they become the aquatic creatures that the characters in the boat see. But it's all in a very goofy way. Um, yeah. it's, it's played for laughs, not for serious physical theater drama. 
I mean, that's that's what you're. It's good to have something that's sort of much lighter than everything else. And DDF is a bit doom and gloom, and so yeah, it's good to have contrast. So, what's your kind of? What do you, do you have any plans for Landlord's Arms post DDF? Um, I don't have anything specific that I'm planning. Um, I want to wait and see what kind of response it gets. Uh, see, you know, which parts get laughs, which parts don't. Uh, if any reviewers write any reviews, I want to give them a read. Um, see if there's any w way I can improve the play. But I'd I'd love to keep it going and improve it. Maybe take it to the fringe at some point. We'll see. Um, I'm I'm very very open and relaxed about that at the moment. Cool, cool, cool. And now here's the challenge. Can you give a summary of your play and why people should come see it in 30 seconds? Yeah. So three, two, one, go. Right, so it's got puns. So if you like puns, it's, it's got them. Uh, and it, it's funny. That's it. I mean, what, what more do you need? What more do you need? All right, I got a little bit of that. Okay, hello, uh, welcome back. We are now back in the studio, just in time Woo! for us to interview Izzy, uh, my wonderful co-host. Hello. Bauer, who wrote Implosion. Maeve and Peter used to be married in the heady days of the 1960s. Now, they're not. Years down the line, the two tell their stories to the audience, to themselves and to each other, about what went wrong and what is left. Now, Izzy, the first question from that summary that I have to ask, is this based on your actual life? No, because as you're well aware, I have never had any kind of significant relationship with anyone. I, but, I, meant, I meant more specifically, I know that you were alive in the 1960s. Oh, no, yeah, definitely. Yeah, obviously. Well, I mean, it, it was more from a, like, because I've been very interested in basically that period since I was around 12, because my dad watches a lot of television from 19, 1957 up to about 1990. So that's the period of time that I know the best. And then I was sort of thinking, I think a marriage is one of the most fascinating sort of dynamics because it's one of those things that starts off in a heady rush of love. And then you sort of start to see the little petty grievances and the fragmentations come out. And this is this is not I'll just say this is not a play about my parents but as an only child basically the only relationship I see on a regular basis is a marriage that's been going for 20 plus years so it's kind of so there's a lot of you can it's, it's very easy to see the tensions and the differences and also the love that's still there which is something I wanted to get through in this play because also there's queer there's queer themes but there's nobody in this play that's entirely a victim and no one is entirely blameless. Yes. Um, so you'd say that your main inspiration for this play is is your parents' relationship, but it isn't biographical. No, it, it's, it's less their relationship because they've, at the end of the day, they have a very strong marriage. They very much, you know, they still love each other, which these two don't. It's sort of what would happen if you took the sort of the arguments that they have on a daily basis and mixed that with, sort of the heady sexual empowerment of the 60s. If you mixed those two things together, then that is what the play would be essentially because it's it's what happens when a marriage starts to fall apart, but it's it's simultaneously a combination of inside factors and outside factors, and then it's examining that and telling the audience that. So there is queer representation somewhat within this mm -hmm. play. Would you say it's a, a major factor um, or it's it's more of an underlying theme? 
I mean, it's a major factor because one of the key relationships in the play is between these two guys, Peter and Thomas, as you never see. He's very, Tom is very much an absence, focus of presence. But it's sort of like, it's, it, I think it's more the conflict of two people who are open sexually, but one of them is discovering that, that they are bisexual and they're moving more in that direction. It's kind of the tension between sort of the free love thing of the 60s and people who are actually committing to a permanent lifestyle and a permanent sexuality that they maybe weren't aware of before. When these are, because both of them are very sexual people, these characters. There's a lot of sort of, it's a very sexual play. I was rereading it going, what the hell were you thinking as well? But um, there's all that kind of stuff. But it's, yeah, queer themes are a very clear part of it because it's kind of seeing when someone from the 60s is like, the, so the woman is like, oh, you've been you've been with this guy. That's horrendous. That's offensive. That's... And then it's contrasting that with the fact that they have a very sort of tender sexual love story happening. So it's kind of, it's it's examining all these viewpoints and how they filter into this marriage and how they move outside of the marriage and that kind of shtick. Okay. Okay. So uh, we have a challenge for you that you're oh, definitely no. not expecting. What? Uh, <laughs> we need you to pitch your show in 30 seconds. Okay. Uh, three, two, Do you like the 1960s? Do you like radical interrogations of love, sexuality, comfort and a society that's simultaneously accepting and rejecting of sexuality? Do you like watching two very good performers just performing with each other whilst breaking the fourth wall? (coughs) Whilst using some of Gabby Sill's Ottomans? Yes, you do. Come and watch this play and also the other two excellent plays that are in my general programme. I know it's in Hill B, but my parents are traveling rocks to come and watch it and you definitely can. And that's all we have time for. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, uh, well, I'd, I'd love to do it again, Matt. Is, will there be an opportunity for that? Perhaps, let's say, no, we're in, a the next, different in the next words. 30 seconds? Uh, who knows? Um, we'll see. Cool. So thank you to all of our writers for coming and talking to us. It was really interesting, and I hope it was for you guys listening at home as well. So Matt is now going to take you through the general programme and all the dates and times. We really hope you'll go and see some of the shows and also keep an eye out on the Facebook for various workshops and talks that are also going to be happening. Matt, take it away. Yes, so the DDF Scratch Night will be on tomorrow, Sunday the 2nd of February at 7.30pm in the Assembly Rooms. Ooh. Mm. Then uh, General Programme 1, which has Implosion by Isabel Laika by Aaliyah Gilmore, and Fishbowl by Larry Mathias, will be in Cadman Hall on Thursday the 6th of February, Friday the 7th of February, and Saturday the 8th of February, all at 7.30. General Programme 2, which will include Number Theory by Imogen Asherwood, Taurus by Elliot Ancona, and The Landlord's Arms by Charles Edward Pipe, will be in the Assembly Rooms Wednesday the 5th of February, 2pm, Thursday the 6th of February, and Saturday the 8th of February at 7.30pm. General Programme 3, which includes He Never Married by Kane Taylor, Lung Barrow's Insomnia by Ada Sidlibus, Green Alert or How I Learned to Face My Fears and Stop Delaying the Inevitable by Ryan King, will be in the Mark Hillary Art Centre, Wednesday the 5th of February and Friday the 7th of February at 7.30pm, and Saturday the 8th of February at 2pm. Book tickets for all of those at the DST website. So, thank you all so much for listening. We really hope you've enjoyed this first edition. We're going to have a link on the website if anyone would like to share feedback, or would like to offer segments that they would like to do or be interviewed by. If you have a show, if you have a show you'd like to promote, we'd love to have you on to talk about it. We'd love to have you on. So please just drop us a message or 
Facebook message us or we're going to set up a page for this podcast, please just drop us all a line. We'd love to hear any feedback and we'd love to have more people on the show. So, so it's thanks to me, Izzy Flower. Thanks for me, Matthew Redmond. And we hope to listen and to talk to you again next time on the DST bracket official podcast, close bracket. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.